Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What's going on is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You will struggle to find a more hilarious and ridiculous passage of play than the 30 seconds or so that preceded Killian Buckley's winning goal in the Leinster hurling final at Croke Park yesterday. Passage of play, so hilarious. I had to watch it back five or six times to fully appreciate the many and varied ways that Galway defenders tried and failed to clear the ball before the Kilkenny man gathered it and slammed it into the back of the net. You're welcome to Monday's Second Captain's Podcast. Murph is not happy. Hey, Ken. Owen, how are you? Hello, Owen. Hello. More than 30 seconds, Murph. <laughs> the ball spent in behind, deep in the Galway defensive line. It went on so long that multiple Galway players made multiple attempts they did to get there it were, at least two of them collapsed with heat exhaustion yeah. in the middle of this uh, I can name the two Murph Garrod McInerney had one attempt blocked then he got another go later on and is so exhausted by a second yeah. go that he just lazily swings a hurl one handed yeah. <laughs> and advances the ball all of three metres Joseph Cooney might be the other one you're referring to there yeah. he, in fairness poor old Cooney was right in the thick of it for the, almost the entirety of the passage of play he tries to catch the Schlitter drops it then tries to lift the ball it's on the ground drops it again at which point Pork Mannion steps in and says enough messing about I'm kicking this one away what's the worst that could happen if what it ends up in the hands of Kitty and Buckley who never scores goals well yeah we'll cross that bridge when we come to it and they came to it very quickly what a finish it was a dramatic finish mm-hmm. uh, on. Um, the Hogan stand is a very very large structure <laughs> if anyone who's familiar with Crow Park's geography it's a large structure and I was urging those goalie players to aim the ball in the direction of that large structure at any of, at, at literally any moment of the 30 or more seconds that you're describing there. But they issued that option, deciding otherwise to go infield, <laughs> which didn't which didn't work. I it don't know. Work. I think a couple of the times they were they were trying to get it launched. Oh, this they, was a refrain. Yeah, they just they tried were. and failed to do so. They were just ab- yeah. like it was extremely warm in Quote Park yesterday. <laughs> uh, I think they they just they you know they just they just died on their feet like died of exhaustion in the corner of the Hogan stand in Canal End. 
It was an extremely dramatic finish to a game, on. You knew something was something special was brewing, Ken, just by the sounds. I could hear the it. Stadium, yeah. I could think, well, I wonder what's going on there. They sound pretty excited mm. over there. But I, I, I had no idea until I checked the score later just how exciting it had been. And I actually didn't know until today that the winning goal had basically been the last oh, yeah. one point. A goal to win yeah. from two points down had been yeah, the last yeah, second yeah. of the game. So, yeah. Pretty good. We had a discussion in today's Champions League pod about Manchester City's lack of celebrity fans. No such problem with these two counties. There's a great photograph of Brian Cody celebrating the win. Looking, I'd say, more overjoyed than he ever did when managing yes, his team. That to is correct. The, the routine <laughs> Leinster titles. Uh, contrast that with podcasting's Kieran Murphy, who looks bereft in a wonderful snap taken by Sports Files' Pyrrhus O'Meach, who tweeted... Kieran Gallans Murphy of second captains at today's <laughs> Leinster hurling final. Hashtag thanks for coming. A lot of World Service in jokes all in the, the one tweet there, which like, might not be appreciated. I've never gotten today. such a body ache in my entire life. Like the guy just absolutely ruined me on Twitter. Like the photograph is. Like, let's not make Gallans my nickname, please. Will you just knock that one on the For the, the non members listening today on a Monday, it relates to a story Kieran told, a self deprecating story, which he eventually told after much prompting last week mm. about an interaction a story he had with, against myself on. with Shane Lowry, in which he tried to engage Shane in some joshing about Kieran's own prodigious It looks like you're drinking escorts from the night it before. Now. It was embarrassing. Little all Marco, Lion Ted, Gallans Murphy. <laughs> Yeah, that photograph. I mean, so, yeah, the thanks well, for coming. Well, well, Hashtag well, dates back to, like, me yeah. ending an interview with Glenn Ryan, then Longford manager uh, on News Talk's uh, GA Championship coverage by saying, thanks for coming <laughs> to the Longford manager. Then there's this gallant nickname. Which is just you. And then like there's it. the photograph, which is a ma- of a man plainly who had actually had quite a few drinks tonight before at my Uncle Jim Carney's book lodge. Oh, how did it so go? So it was magnificent. Excellent, it excellent. was absolutely brilliant. You've never heard more goals from the 1970s comic <laughs> championship disgusting <laughs> under one room than in that room. So yeah, it's just red-faced clown being picked out. The sunglasses are the giveaway here, Ken. Can you describe what you're seeing here? Well, he's, he's got a... He's, he's jabbing his finger. Mm-hmm. Or he's wa- he's maybe he's wagging his finger. He's got he's the Galway wristband with a with a Galway clad wrist. What is, what is that actually? Is that that's it's a, a headband wrapped around a wrist? It's a he- yeah yeah because yeah. yeah. it's it's there's a lot of it's gone around the wrist a few times. Yeah, it's actually a really long one. I thought there was a much shorter one around the house, but I but that was the only one I could find. I think you look a, you know, sharp, a little rumpled. Yeah, I look very dark shades. Lived in. I look a little lived in. I do get. I do. Hair worn. It's the face of experience, isn't it? <laughs> no, but it's uh, yeah, it's 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 a great shot. Yeah. So, so that that, uh, that monumental own is now up to nine hundred and seventy six likes on Twitter. So thank you. Any again, idea Pierce. what you're wagging your finger about? Uh, well, it's in the general direction of the big screen. So maybe I'm pointing out to Collie, my friend, and his four-year-old son, Elliot. They oh, yeah. were the two people I was at the game with. So maybe I was pointing something out to them on the big screen. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's really terrible. You might still have been watching the Munster final. How did that experience go? The whole oh, Munster yeah, so final they, on the big screen. They showed the Munster final on the big screen. And uh, we'll obviously be talking about this uh, with Jamie Wall and Malachy Turkin on, the, on tomorrow's show. Yeah. But uh, I got in for the second half uh, of the Munster hurling final. And uh, as the game went down the stretch, it was... Uh, it was really enlightening to hear the crowd reaction to a game happening 120 miles away. Each Clare score greeted lustily with applause from all four quarters of the ground when Limerick scored 
total and utter silence. <laughs> <laughs> Final whistle goes. People start uh, cursing uh, uh, Galway referee Liam Gordon loudly for not awarding uh, free in the last seconds. Uh, but then warm-hearted applause rang out for Limerick's... Fr- no, it didn't. No, it didn't. Absolutely nothing. Right, let's... Right, well, that one went against us, but hopefully our team will win the Leicester uh, Hurling final. That's basically what happened there. Yeah. Oh, I, just, I just don't understand this. The li- anti-Limerick bias? I mean, you know... Can we not... I mean, it was uh, we were touching on this in the football show earlier. Can we not just appreciate greatness? Well, and in this one, Djokovic is... Yeah. There are parallels there. Manchester City, yeah. Djokovic, people hate, people Limerick. hate winners. Yeah. Jamie Wall, as you said, and Malky Clerken on the show tomorrow. Secondcaptains.com, five or a month plus VAT if you want to hear that conversation. Today, we're talking to Caitlin Thompson about Novak Djokovic going out on his own in the men's game as the winner of 23 Grand Slam titles. Just don't expect him to get involved in the GOAT conversation. Novak, yeah, congratulations. How does it feel to be the greatest male player in history? Well, uh, thank you. I mean, I, I, I don't want to say that I am the greatest because I feel it's a... I've said it before, it's a disrespectful towards all the great champions in different eras of our sport uh, that was played in a completely different way than it is played today. So I feel like each uh, great champion of his own generation has left a huge mark, a legacy, and paved the way for for us to be able to play to play this, this sport in, in in such a great stage worldwide. So um, I leave the, those kind of discussions of who is the greatest uh, to someone else. Uh. Caitlin often doesn't want to be that someone else. She doesn't love the greatest of all time conversation, but it's hard to avoid it entirely today. So. We'll see what she has to say. Djokovic was involved in some off-court controversy again at this one. I think he likes. I think he likes a bit of off-court controversy. Yeah. I'm not saying he necessarily wanted to be well, deported if, from Australia yeah. that time. <laughs> if he hates it, he's proven really, really bad at avoiding it. Yeah, it's true. So this time he was writing Kosovo was the heart of Serbia. Stopped the violence on a courtside camera lens following his first round win. He doubled down on all that in his post-match presser. It was a big furore over that. Serbia has never formally accepted Kosovo's declaration of independence, and there has been increased tension there recently so that was going on there was also tension between the Belarusian player Ariana Sabalenka and both of the Ukrainian players that she beat on her way to the semi-finals ended up playing two Ukrainians both of whom refused to shake her hand after their matches she was pressed pretty hard after her second round win to personally state her opposition to the war she then skipped a couple of press conferences saying she'd felt unsafe at that presser and cited the need to preserve her mental health she came back to the press conference room after her quarterfinal win against Alina Svitolina when she was once again pressed to comment on the war in Ukraine. I feel like it's a tough question. I mean, I don't don't support war, meaning I don't support Lukashenko right now. And I said it many times already, I'm not supporting war. I don't want my country to be involved in any conflict. I said it many times and you have you you know where I stand. You know, you have my position, you have my answer. I'm, I answered many times. I'm not supporting the war. And the thing that I don't want to um, support to be involved in politics because I'm just a tennis player, um, 25 years old tennis player, and if I would like to be political, I wouldn't be here. I don't want to be involved in any politics. I just want to be a tennis player. That, that's obviously the Belarus president, Alexander Lukashenko, that she referenced there. So fair to say there's quite a bit going on at the French Open this year. Here's Caitlin. You know, we're, we're very proud of the lads, albeit I, I acknowledge last year that moral victories are probably gone in war, if you like, so, so, so hard to get back here again, you know. 
I'm I'm an emotional wreck here now at the moment. Uh, look, I'm I'm in tear, tears for my own county, but I'm absolutely. I had one of the best nights of my life last night with a lot of an awful lot of Galway people. And if we weren't going to win it, fair of choose the choose the Galway. Kenny goes back to take the line ball. It's on the verge. It's on the verge for Galway. Joel Kenny with the line ball. Back outside his own 45 line. It's all over. Galway have won the All-Ireland Championship. Mick Kelly back in 1923. Joel Connolly in 1980. Connolly is the man to my list in 87 and 88 with the captains. But David Burke is going to captain Galway to the fifth All-Ireland crown. We think of Tony Keeney. We think of Joe McDonough. We think of Niall Donahoe. We think of Michael Corkin. We think of every great hurling person that has left us in the massive, massive time of 29 years. Connor is, I don't mind you admitting it, there's a fair few tears in the eyes. This is absolutely magic. Ah, uh, brilliant, Sean. I, I, I just saw her our friend Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine is on today after an eventful French Open, both on and off the court. Caitlin, hope you enjoyed the last couple of weeks. The French Open is my Super Bowl. It's my World Cup. It's my favorite slam. The Terre Battue is where uh, dreams, in my mind, come alive. So this was a really eventful past couple of weeks, and I'm, I'm sad to see it go, to be honest. Hold on, I feel like you're one of these players who, when they're at the Australian Open, this is the best run tournament of all the majors, and then they're in Wimbledon going, there's nothing like Wimbledon, you know? How is the French, it's the French Open is your favourite now? I mean, that's a fair point, because I do think a lot of us tennis enthusiasts tend to really relish the moment. Um, I detest hard courts, and I actually think no, no tennis should be played on them, only organic surfaces for me. It tends to bring out the best tennis, so I do like grass quite a bit. Um, I find the British stuffiness a little bit much. The French is so emotional and raw that it really is truly my favorite. And I am on record consistently saying the French is the best slam, uh, which I stand by. Yeah, and you were there uh, this year for a couple of days as well, uh, appearing to have an obscene amount of fun. Obscene. It was an obscene amount of fun. I have to say, I have found Paris, specifically Paris in the past, um, quite provincial and I enjoy France but I don't always enjoy Paris and I don't know if it's just because Paris has benefited from all of the sort of recentering of the city as a financial capital in the wake of Brexit which means it's had to become a little bit more internationally minded or if it was just because we ended up going there to do some events for racket right as the season was coming alive in the the first sort of nice weather, but it felt very different this year to me than it has in years past. Um, And, you know, and the French is always amazing to go to, but this year in particular, just something magical was happening uh, in Paris. So I was happy to sort of have my mind changed, to be honest. Uh, Would you describe Novak Djokovic's 23rd Grand Slam win as part of the magic? Um, Certainly, if you're a Novak Djokovic fan, this was an inevitable notch on the belt for him to get to 23 slams tying Serena Williams. I think for most of us, it was sort of a march to inevitability, um, especially once the perceived threat of Carlos Alcaraz was sort of removed without much ado. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, I think if you're his sponsor or a fan, that was a magical run. I think for everybody else, it was sort of a march towards inevitability. At the risk of ending this call after just a few questions, <laughs> <laughs> is Novak Djokovic now officially the GOAT, Caitlin? I know you don't like that one. I mean, by Grand Slam count, he's got to share his uh, GOAT status with Serena, at least for another couple of weeks. I think he certainly is the favorite at Wimbledon, so it's not crazy to think he's going to get to 24 and therefore have the record on his own. I have sort of made peace with the fact that the quant the quants have maybe won out over the, the qualitatives in this sort of debate because people on the internet and people in... Um, you know, chat rooms tend to like stats. But for me, the GOAT has never been who holds the most trophies over their heads. Because if it had been, we'd been talking about Martina Navratilova, who has the most trophies of all time, singles, doubles, and mixed. Or if we were talking about the way that people who make us feel when we watch them play uh, meaning greatness, I think we would have an entirely different conversation. So I think for me personally, the GOAT conversation is is so linked to results as to make the results feel very I don't know, boring and sort of takes away from the matchups and the unpredictability. Um, that said if trophies are your thing, Novak's got the most of any man and he's about to tie, uh, he's about to, you know, tie Margaret Court's unofficial record and, and become, I think, alone atop the, the Grand Slam trophy count for sure. Yeah, uh, the, the phrase uh, quantity has a quality all of its own uh, just kind of come to mind. But Ben Bramble in The Guardian was writing, uh, since 2019, Djokovic has won eight slams, but during this time, Federer was too old and injured to play his best and the competition was gener- generally pretty weak. It's not that these eight slams don't count, but they are worth less. I think that's a remarkably ungenerous way to look at it. I think you could probably say the same about Serena Williams, who won the majority of her Grand Slams in the mid-2010s when, especially after the retirement of Justine Enna, almost nobody could give her a run for her money. Maria Sharapova certainly didn't. Her own sister did for a minute, but then sort of faded into the background. Um, I think if you're going to care about trophies, then whoever ends up holding one at the end of a Grand Slam is holding one at the end of a Grand Slam. I think you still have to win seven matches, and you can't control necessarily who's on the other side of the net um, from you. And so I think if you're going to make the argument that this is the pinnacle of our sport, that the record amount of slam trophies, that maybe the golden slam, which is winning all four in a year, plus a gold medal, you know, there's some, some records that are looked at within our sport as being more sort of worthy than others. The one I've always liked, as I said, which is why I invoked it, is... The best all-around tennis player for me has always been Martina because she played every event and dominated each and every event. Um, and in fact, skipped a few, a few Grand Slams when she was playing things like world team tennis. So again, I think everybody can have their sort of stake at it. But I think to to compare eras, especially when Roger Federer cruised to a lot of his early Grand Slams, really before the preeminence of Rafa, um, you know, I don't know that you can say one in one year is worth less than another. I mean, Novak Djokovic mm-hmm. has won 22 Grand Slams in the 12 years since, uh, you know, Roger and Rafa were really at the preeminence of the sport in 2011. So if, by this count, you absolutely have to just submit to the fact that he is, you know, the GOAT uh, by this count, uh, at least on the men's side and probably, you know, in all of tennis in another couple of weeks. There's probably no bad venue for him to win number 23, but to do it at Roland Garros, I guess, has a has a nice 
little flourish given it's Nadal's place. It's where he has, it's the place he's owned for so many years now. So there's, that's another just nice little touch for Djokovic, I would imagine, that he did it there. And he, and he seems to, to have that crowd on side. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting because when uh, Djokovic was playing Medvedev a couple of years ago at the U.S. Open, and all of a sudden the U.S. Open went from being sort of openly hostile territory to rooting for him, he almost emotionally didn't know how to handle it. So I think for me, understanding Djokovic, while not loving his tennis, and I would say the same thing about Igor Svantec, both of these, um, you know, very dominant, uh, super defense-oriented uh, you know, excellent athletes, but not the style of tennis that I particularly love. Um, you know, you you have to look for other things to sort of, at least in my case, you have to look for other things to understand him or, or appreciate about him. And for me, it's the just the insane mental interior uh, landscape that he brings to the match, you know, thinking about the final in particular, but also some of the great finals that he's played over the last sort of decade plus his ability to kind of summon this oppositional energy to thrust him into this other gear. We saw it in the final against Casper Ruud. You know, the match got tight in the first set, and then all of a sudden he's got this sort of invented beef with the umpire. Maybe it's a crowd noise. Maybe it's an injury. Just some sort of adversity appears. And if you watch him long enough, you realize that that's the pattern. And unlike somebody like Nick Kyrgios, who's looking for an excuse to emotionally bail out of a tennis match when the any kind of perceived adversity, maybe it's somebody drunk in the crowd, maybe it's a call he didn't like, maybe his box is not standing on their feet enough to applaud every single shot he hits, which are all very real examples from Nick Kyrgios matches in the last couple of years. Novak Djokovic does the opposite thing, which is maybe he invents adversity and then finds another gear because of it. And I think if you can't find his tennis all that enjoyable, which I don't, I absolutely have to admit that this is a fascinating phenomenon where he's created this adversity. And your point about Rafa's house in Roland Garros is probably enough of a ghost of a specter to sort of get him to be propelled to win. You know, he's talked openly about wanting to be at the top of the heap. He's talked openly about not wanting to share his perch with any of the other sort of big three as they probably soon will stop being known as uh, with Roger's retirement and Rafa's, you know, near certain end of the end of the road. So, yeah, I think Novak is kind of creating these specters of competition and, and sort of uh, moments of conflict or moments of sort of historical significance to propel him forward. It's fascinating, even if it's not all that enjoyable, unless you're a diehard Novak Djokovic fan. Off the court as well, Caitlin, do you think? Say with the Kosovo comments this week, I'm not saying for a moment he doesn't believe what he's saying and all that, but he also knows the kind of the kind of situation he's going to be getting himself into. Do you think that he, he, he revels in that and he creates these situations off the court the same as he does on them? I have to I have to suspect that he is creating some sort of noise or discord. It's interesting because I had a personal experience with him this this tournament. We went to Paris uh, to do a racket house, which is our, sort of our experiential live event. And one of our partners was head and they have a bevy of amazing athletes, uh, some of the best women and men in the world, obviously, uh, Sinner and Krizhikova and, you know, all these others. And Novak Djokovic is a head athlete. He came to the party. He was a complete blast. He lingered in the photo booth, shook all the hands, kissed all the babies. He was fun. He, you know, got down on the dance floor. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, maybe I've been too hard on this guy. 
you know, he's a pro. He's a total pro. He goes and prepares for the matches, absolutely beats any comers that come his way for the, you know, vast majority of the match outcomes. And he shows up at these corporate events and he's fun and he's available. And he's sort of the guy that I remember when, you know, he was pre-fame doing impressions of other players and sort of being this accessible goofball. And then literally within hours, he's writing on the camera, you know, Kosovo is part of Subaru, which if you know anything about the Balkans is no, you know, it's like an incredibly pointed provocation of, uh, you know, nationalist further fervor and, and sort of, I, I guess you would say xenophobia. Um, so yeah, I have to imagine that this guy, whether it's the, you know, uh, the meeting with Nigel Farage or the vaccine stuff, it's just, you know, he thrives in conflict. I do think there's a bit of a siege mentality, whether it's overt or covert that he is drawing strength from. One thing we know is that athletes, um, especially those who travel the world and have to contextualize themselves in stadium and crowd that are often, you know, hostile. I think you you tend to see a lot of them wanting to shy away from conflict or shy away from distraction, and that is not the case for Novak Djokovic. He seems to get stronger and more mentally focused the more kind of. Uh, noise that's swirling around him. And it's fascinating to watch, again, even if you're not, um, you know, a fan of a lot of his provocations or what they stand for. I can't imagine he's not doing it on purpose. Yeah, 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 I think Sabalenka, the Belarusian player, might be much more typical of the cohort you talk about as somebody who doesn't want to be involved in anything off the court, but she has found herself by dint of the country that she comes from, being in the situation where she plays against, uh, she's from Belarus, plays against a couple of Ukrainian players who both refused to shake her hands and she's left carrying the can somewhat for what's going on in her country and answering questions on that. How did you view how that all played out over the, the few days? I mean, I, I'm, I sort of remain very sympathetic to, first of all, all the players involved. Walking out onto a court while your country, your home, in some cases, you know, your neighborhood is being reduced to rubble is, you know, absolutely has to be stated at the top of the response is just an absolute shambles it's a it's a tragedy and the idea that these players in a lot of cases are still competing in some cases are fighting there's a there's a pro from the ukraine called alexander dolgopolov and we're trying to track him down for an upcoming issue of the magazine because he is currently on the front lines fighting in um you know that that sort of russian claimed territory of ukraine and the idea that he was a professional athlete you know within the last 18 months and is now you know on the front lines is just insane that said, um, most of these Russian and Belarusian players have condemned the war as strongly as they possibly can do, in my view, safely, including uh, Arena Sabalenka, who said she does not support the war, so that means she does not support Lukashenko. Some of them, the ones who never plan to go back, like Daria Kasatkina, um, have openly spoken out against Putin, which, again, puts her her family certainly her extended network of contacts, finances, et cetera, in grave danger. You know, I don't think it can be overstated how speaking out against an autocratic government, um, you know, we've seen it with the Chinese players. There's a Chinese player who refused, who can't go home, who has been essentially touring the world injured for the last two years because she fears for her safety if she were to return home. So I think, you know, I understand why there is a movement of solidarity on the part of the Ukrainian players, specifically Marta Kostya, specifically Alina Svitolina, 
um, to make this statement and make this politicized. I have no problem with sports being political, but I do think the, I mean, I think sports are inherently political and it's, if, if you're wanting politics to be out of sports, it means you're probably aligned with the, you know, the, the status quo, the powers that be right. That said, you know, there's a limit to how much these players can safely speak on this matter. And Irina Sabalenka being asked about, you know, to condemn Lukashenko in every one of her press conferences just gets to a point where it's just sort of like, what are we doing here? What's the, what's the point of this? How how much can you get out of this person? And, and how is this actually sort of, you know, affecting the dialogue around the, the issue? So I, it, it's, I think if tennis were serious about getting Russian influence specifically out of sport, they would look at who is members of a lot of these Tony private clubs. I'm looking at the All England London Tennis Club in London, for example, and who's funding it and what brands, right? No, nobody ever wants to look at the money and the oligarch influence network. They're happy to make the players sort of do the tap dance for it. But the truth is there's a lot of Russian influence in tennis, but it's not coming from the players. It's coming from the money. Obviously, we're used to um, national teams facing off against each other in this kind of in this kind of heightened atmosphere, and it's easy for us maybe to understand two football teams come together to play each other in a vital soccer match. Their countries are have strained uh, relations with each other, and it plays out in a in kind of this gladiatorial, um, if you'll forgive the kind of the sort of warlike language, this gladiatorial uh, scenario of a ninety-minute uh, soccer game that people watch on television. Obviously, in tennis, it's a totally different thing because these players are they're not in different dressing rooms. They're sharing. They're actually sharing a dressing room before they go out. And I know that Frantek uh, spoke uh, before the tournament about the this heavy atmosphere in the locker room, and and. That to me is kind of nearly the most interesting uh, angle of all this is that they're not coming together once every three weeks to play each other. They're, they are actually part of the same traveling circus. Completely right. They're not only sharing a locker room, but they're, uh, in a lot of cases, not going home. In, in the cases of several of the Russian players specifically, uh, they don't live in Russia. They live and train in either Monte Carlo, in some cases Dubai, some of them live and train in Spain. And so the idea that they are representative or even really that um, aware or sort of ensconced in the political machinations is it's just a little bit murky. And so, yeah, these people are co-workers and they're traveling the world in a circus, as you said, week on week on week. And oftentimes they're not, and certainly in the cases of the Russians and the Belarusians, which the governing bodies in tennis have decided to strip the flags off of the names next to them, they're not playing for their country. Most of the time they're playing for themselves. Russia and Belarusia, sorry, Belarus have been banned from international competition. They're not going to be participating in the Olympics and they're not participating in the team competitions known as Davis Cup and now the Billie Jean King Cup. And so, you know, again, like in the case of Victoria Azarenka, who's lived in the United States for the vast majority of her life. Yeah, she's technically from Belarus and I don't know her political um, inclinations, but I would imagine she feels much more American. That's where her she's raising her son. That's where she's been based for most of her life. And, you know, I think, again, I don't know how effective it is that these players be representatives of their country, um, especially if they are in a place where they don't necessarily agree with what their country is doing, which I think we have every indication that there is nary a Russian or a Belarusian who does. Um, maybe you could make the p- case that Potapova, the Russian woman who wore a Moscow 
football club jersey at one of the tournaments was wearing that in support of Putin. I'm not sure, but you know, it's a, it's a it's a bit of a sticky wicket, as people in other sports would say. So I'm not exactly sure how how much they symbolize or or tend to stand for the governments um, that might be operating back home that they have in some cases a lot or in most cases a little contact with. Was the crowd reaction a little bit odd to the the lack of a handshake from Marta Kostyuk, the Ukrainian player? Because they started booing and the commentator thought they were booing the Russian player, I, I believe. But actually, it turns out they were booing a Ukrainian, for not, the Belarusian player, for not shaking hands. I mean, surely a, a Ukrainian player in this situation is within their rights to not shake hands if they, if they don't feel comfortable doing so. Completely right. They also booed... Uh, Daria Kasatkina, who's been the most outspoken anti-Putin Russian, who uh, was refused a handshake by Linus Vitalina. So I think my takeaway from the crowd reaction to Ukraine and Belarusian or Russian players is that the crowd is going to do in France whatever the crowd in France wants to do, which is sort of not... As far as crowds go, they're relatively well-informed. They really dig into the, you know, sort of more deep cut type of matches. They tend to know a lot about a bunch of the players, but they can be swept up by sort of overarching emotion and sentiment. And that's why when you get those sort of like, you know, lusty boos where everyone's sort of piling on or, um, you know, Luca Puy won his first round match, which was the first match that he'd won, I think, at the tour level in a couple of years, certainly in a Grand Slam, and, you know, everyone's singing the national anthem together uh, with accompanying brass band. So I think, um, I don't know how much I want to read into the French crowd's behavior because I think their own behavior would is a mystery to them because I think it's, you know, sort of, ma- and, and fickle. I think it changes uh, hour by hour, if not match by match. Iguez Vontek, we should mention, wins her third French Open in four years. I think I saw she's 28 wins out of 30 matches at Roland Garros in her career. She's still only 22 years of age. Obviously, other surfaces like Wimbledon are, are trickier for her. But at, at this stage, how dominant a figure do you think she can be in the game? I mean, I do feel like we've asked you questions about other players like this, Naomi Osaka, a few years ago. So th- things can happen, obviously. But what about Svantec? Yeah, I mean, it, it, hard to argue with how dominant a performance she had. Uh, certainly in the final, you know, people were excited that the final ended up being as close as it was. Mukova obviously got that second set and gave her a bit of a run for her money in the third. But to my mind, this was never competitive. Um, I would rather have seen Arena Sabalenka in the final, you know, despite the fact that she lost to Mukova after holding a match point because the final would have been competitive and the outcome would not have been so certain. You know what I mean? So I think the interesting thing about Iga Sviantek is that she is so solid all around. She's a great mover. She's a lot like Djokovic. She can turn offense um, from defense with a, with a, in a, in a blink of an eye. But um, when she is playing a player who has sort of more tools or more offense, sometimes the racket can come out of her hand. Sometimes it's not under her control uh, because she can lose to players who have better, bigger weapons. And Arena Sabalenka is one of them. So yeah, I think for me, what Iga Sviantek's win, much like Novak Djokovic win shows us is that 
consistency and the ability to summon your highest level, you know, over the course of the seven matches at a Grand Slam, over the course of a season, over the course of years, is incredibly impressive and cannot be slighted. On the other hand, when a player possesses bigger weapons, even if they can't summon their best tennis as consistently or as sort of reliably as those two players can, it makes for a more exciting outcome. And I'm thinking specifically of watching Novak Djokovic lose to Stan Wawrinka at the French Open, for example. Or Styles make fights, as they say in boxing. Exactly. And I think the stylistic matchups for the two finals, there's a reason that everyone was looking forward to the Novak Djokovic-Carlitos-Alcaraz match. And it's not just because Carlitos-Alcaraz was probably... Um, unfairly favored. You know, tennis, like everything, has a recency bias. This guy is new and exciting, so of course he should be the favorite because he already has one U.S. Open title. Well, Novak Djokovic went into that match having 22 Grand Slams, and making him anything but the favorite is sort of insane. That said, that match was a more compelling matchup because Carlos Alcaraz has tools and weapons with which he can hurt Novak Djokovic. Um, Arena Sabalenka has tools and weapons with which he can she can hurt Iga Sviantek. Caroline Mukhova and Kasper Ruud respectively, do not have weapons at this stage in their career development that can hurt those dominant um, eventual champions. And so for me, it is really about the matchup. And I think we've seen Iga lose plenty when she's playing against a player who is able to summon their best tennis more reliably um, because she doesn't have the big, flashy, aggressive weapons. But if anybody does anything but bring their best against her, she can outlast them and out-defend them, which is what we saw her doing against a pretty spirited run by Mukova in the final. Mukova just doesn't have the tools to hurt Iga um, over the course of the best of three sets. My hope is that changes, because I love Mukova's game. Many of us who watch tennis closely do. She has all of the offensive skills. She's got great hands. She's uh, an all-quarter. Um, but the truth is, as soon as I saw that matchup, I thought, okay, well, Iga's going to waltz to her, her next final. And even though it wasn't as easy as I anticipated it being, it wasn't competitive. Are there any stories, more stories from your own trip to Paris that, we're, that we need to hear here, Caitlin? I wouldn't want to you let know, you go and then feel like, I should have asked her another question about <laughs> what uh, Paris. Well, it just, it's a little disappointing because the finals were so, in my mind, non-competitive, but everything else was so fantastic to watch. The... the new Simone Mathieu court at the French Open, which is built across the street from the main uh, facility and there's sort of a botanical garden to go get there and it's built like a greenhouse is just one of the most breathtaking stages of tennis, uh, stages for tennis to take place on that I've ever seen. So anybody who's going to that tournament, just camp out there. That is where I watched some of the best most sort of rousing matches. If you can watch a French player, the quarantine motet um, first rounder against a French wild card where Mutet had wrist surgery and could not hit a single over the top backhand. He had to slice his way through and did it with sort of panache and the kind of openly antagonistic crowd was one of the most breathtaking things I'd ever seen. I also loved um, the two lefties from North America, Taylor Townsend and Leila Fernandez getting to the final of the women's doubles. That was incredible to watch. We don't think of Leila Fernandez as a doubles uh, threat, but she is an incredibly good partner, and Taylor Townsend is perfectly weaponized for doubles. So there was so much great tennis. I thought the story about 
the women's doubles team, um, the player from Japan getting defaulted because she accidentally hit the ball girl, but then going on to win the mixed was incredible. There's just so many good stories if you walk around the grounds and you get outside of the main stadiums. And I think for me, whether it's wheelchair tennis or juniors or even some of the legends seeing Gabriela Sabatini compete again, you know, it's just tennis has so much more to offer than two singles finals. And I think for that reason, um, anybody who goes to a tournament, go early and spread the love. Don't just stay in your stadium seat. Go out to the outer courts because a lot of times that's where the best matches are going to be. And also that's where you can see the closest and see what, you know, contending on this sort of gladiatorial surface, especially clay, um, you know, really sort of really differentiates it. So, yeah, I mean, for me, just being there the first couple of days was um, just an incredibly spectacular experience. The tournament's gotten better and better. Well, Wimbledon's only a few weeks away, Caitlin, so we'll talk to you soon. Thanks a million. Thanks for having me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone. I'm just back from the embassy. The embassy, the embassy, the embassy, the embassy, the embassy. The ambassador's receptions are noted in society for their host's exquisite taste that captivates his guests. Monsieur, with this rocher, you're really spoiling us. Well, I had some pate. That's pretty French. Just canapes, man. You know what I mean? It's yours. Complete absence of Ferrero Rocher. Excellent. A lot of culture. Good manners in football. How many for our shade did you just so shove down is, your gun? This is why you didn't get invited. As if the French ambassador would poison my palate with a Ferrero Rocher. Monsieur, with this Rocher, you're really spoiling us. I was eyeball to eyeball with the French government's representative here in Ireland. Before we finish up for the day, here's your regular Rashida Adeleke has done something insane <laughs> in track and field in America slot. This is actually my favourite weekly slot at the moment. Yeah. I have it might to be say. ending soon in terms of the collegiate circuit anyway. Mm. There is talk. We, if you remember when we talked to her, she said she's been getting offers since she was like 14 or something like that to yeah. go professional 15. Very, very young anyway. And she's always turned them down. Didn't feel she was ready for a long time. She was a bit more equivocal on what might happen from here on in. She's also a straight-A student. like She's yeah. knocking it out of the park in college there as well. But it does seem like there are obviously more and more offers coming in and it might make sense to have all of her time to devote to trying to win a medal. Let's be honest, she probably wants to win a gold medal at the Olympics in Paris. So this could end up being her last this race in so, college. This has moved ah, so quickly as well, by the way. I'll go through the times as well yeah, in a yeah, minute. But like, So this is the NCAA Championship, 400 metres, her home track, University of Texas. She wasn't the favourite uh, for this one. That tag went to Britton Wilson, but not for long. Delicate has the crowd, but Wilson has the lead. It is closer than we expected to be. Here comes Rashid Adelike. Oh my gosh, 
this is a huge upset. This seals it for Texas. Ooh. And at 49-20, she just misses the collegiate record. That's a meet record, breaking Britton Wilson's record from the other day. And I swear, that is about the win that was on the backstretch. This is a woman who can take a lot more of that. Well, there's so much upside to Rashida Adelike. Every time she runs the 400 meters, she runs a personal best. She represents Ireland. She's got every record for the country of Ireland. Ooh, indeed. <laughs> Those were the words of the... That was the exhortation of yes. the ESPN co-commentator there. So the times here, that latest run is 49.20. If you remember a few months ago, the question was whether or not she was going to get down below 50 seconds. Yes. Break the 50 second barrier. She is now quite close to 49 seconds. She can't see the 50 second no, barrier she's from where she is about now. That. Yeah, I mean, it was a couple of months ago, but uh, she's absolutely destroyed that. She, uh, Her previous Irish record was 49.54. So that's now down to 49.20. Ina Reardon points out it's also faster than the British record, which is 49.41 set by Christina Harugu. And if she had run that time in last year's Tokyo Olympics or at the Tokyo Olympics, would have been good enough for a silver medal for Adeleke. The question now is what she does from here on in. So I suppose we'll watch that space yeah, and hopefully get her on the show again. She's got a brilliant personality to go with all this. She's just a phenomenal athlete, athlete to watch in full flow and a great talker. And Phenomenal you, student. She's like, a, she was telling me, wasn't it, like an all-American sort of joint uh, for uh, academic performance yeah. by an NCAA athlete. She, so she's obviously I, just an insanely high I, achiever. I think, I think we might have put that to her rather than her yeah. saying, hey, you guys yeah, also way, know that I'm a, second, yeah. an all-American Before we wrap scholar. up here, I yeah. want to... Yeah. You'll remember also Derville Rourke went, apps by Derville standards, did not hold back at all on mm. the hype because if, if an athlete doesn't deserve the hype, Derville doesn't bother giving it to her. But she was absolutely like, forget about, you know, forget about a, a medal here or there. She can dominate the sport. I think she could said she could have a Bolt-esque impact on the yeah. sport, which, <laughs> which I did kind of think steady on now. That's, so. a, that's a first for we'll Derville. I've happens. not heard Derville say that before. We'll see what happens so, over yeah. next. But amazing. Uh, extraordinary next performance. Yeah. That's it for today. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Owen. Thank you Ken. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear the full hurling chat and coverage of the Ireland, Republic of Ireland's trip to Athens later in the week and loads more on the World Service, you can sign up now on secondcaptains.com. If you do so, you'll hear all episodes ad-free. The Second Captains podcast. It's part of a wider community as well. Uh, it's part of the ACAST Creator Network own. Correct. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sport's important.